This morning's reading is St. Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And you can find this on page 1007 in your pew Bibles. Jesus raises a dead girl and heals a sick woman. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out of him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? (coughs) You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means... Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice to be back with you. And um, 
I'm still slightly reeling from the thought of Richard being banished to a desert island and what that, what that might be like. <laughs> Please do um, keep your Bibles open um, at Mark chapter 5. Now, Mark um, is not writing a biography as such. Um, he's not writing a historical account as such. Um, what we have seen over these last few weeks is he's, he's telling us right from the word go in chapter 1, verse 1, he's telling us news. He's telling us good news. That's what we've seen, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the implication of that good news, as we've seen um, throughout, is summarized in chapter 1, verse 15, with the need to repent and believe. Repent, to turn around and believe. So you see, to encounter Jesus Christ is to come to a crossroad in your life, to face a moment of decision. And that was true then, and it's true today. When we hear the word of Jesus, we are confronted with the need to either follow him, to repent and believe, or to walk away and reject him. It's the choice. There is a choice that we face. And Mark has shown us that Jesus is the king over creation. He, he stilled the storm. He's the creation over, over evil um, in the powers we saw last week over the demonic uh, forces. And as Jesus did these things, you might expect that people would, would uh, uh, flock to him and follow him. That people would, would turn and believe, as the summary uh, says. But of course, that's not exactly what happens. I mean, sure, there's, there's crowds. Um, there's definitely crowds. Sure, there's curiosity. Sure, there's amazement. Um, but few had a real interest in Jesus. You see, when, when we come just into close proximity to Jesus, um, only a few really pay careful attention to who Jesus really is. I mean, look with me at verse 17, which was just before what we had read. Jesus had just rid the community of a a real problem, uh, a a demonic uh, force that was affecting a man. And yet, instead of asking Jesus to stay, they began to plead with Jesus to leave. Look again at, at verse 40 from our own reading, when Jesus has spoken to Jairus about his daughter just sleeping. What's their initial reaction? They just laughed, didn't they? They laughed in his face. And then we will see uh, what you see in chapter 6, verse 3, when Jesus comes to his own town in Nazareth and starts to teach. What happens there? People took offense at him. Jesus is asked to leave. Jesus is laughed at. Jesus is, uh, um, causes offense. And, of course, not much has changed, really, has it, in 2,000 years. should not surprise us. It didn't surprise Jesus. And that's what the parable of the sower was all about. You remember the parable of the sower in chapter 4? Yes, the seed goes out. It goes everywhere. It hits different places. But only if that seed lands on good soil will it produce a crop. And so today, so today, in this very church, we believe the seed, the word, is is going out. 
And will it find good soil? Let's pray, shall we? God, our Father, thank you so much for your, your word. We pray um, that by your spirit, this, the seed, would, the word, would find good soil this morning in our hearts and in our lives. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has uh, crossed over um, by boat to the other side of the lake um, in chapter 5, and immediately he's confronted by a large crowd. And a market here is very much setting the scene to what's going to happen. Um, what happens, it's a bit like, I suppose, the, the kind of a celebrity or a politician, a big crowd gathers, they're pressing and pushing uh, on him, and uh, perhaps some people are trying to grab an interview, perhaps some people... Uh, if it was today, would try to grab an autograph or some sort of selfie or something like that. Um, and verse 25 says, And a woman was there in the crowd. The crowd um, had just seen the synagogue leader, uh, Jairus, come rushing up with a request. And it's very interesting, the passage highlights the fact that Jairus is a synagogue leader leader three times it says it three times in in 22 to 35 and 38 synagogue leader synagogue leader synagogue leader mark saying i want you to realize this is a synagogue leader someone important upstanding member of the community someone to be respected and mark highlights that for us notice um very much his posture as he comes to jesus it's very important Verse 22, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. The synagogue leader falls at the feet of Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. This important leading member of the community to fall at anyone's feet is highly unusual culturally in that society. It would have been seen very much as an undignified thing to do. Now, the way an individual comes to Jesus um, makes all the difference. And I think Mark wants us to see this. I mean, if you come to Jesus just to question him in a kind of detached way, um, you will not ultimately find faith in Jesus. You know, the posture of Jairus kneeling here is very important. He comes from a sincere heart, seeking after Jesus. It's the way of humility. And of course, his posture then matches his plea, doesn't it? In verse 23, my my little daughter is dying. Please come. Put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. I mean, any father can identify with that, can't, can't they? Anyone can really identify as a family that nightmare um, situation. My little daughter is dying. He's not come to discover things, as it were, about Jesus in a detached way to kind of get a ten-point plan about how to change um, my life. He's not come on the off chance, has he? He has come seeking Jesus. He has a need. He is pleading. He is desperate. He wants help. And Jesus is ready 
to give him that help. Verse 23, please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And he believes Jesus can do it. Uh, how he came to that belief here at this, this juncture, we're not told. He is the synagogue leader, after all. Don't forget, he will have heard the rumors. He'll have heard this, something going on about um, Jesus on the grapevine. So Jesus goes with Jairus. He goes to his house. And there's a sense of, of kind of, uh, the thing I like about Mark is just there's a real sense of real-time action, isn't there? Everything is sort of immediate, and the drama is heightened, and the large crowd now follow um, Jesus and Jairus on the way to the house. And a real sense of jostling and pushing and shoving as they slowly move forward, making their way um, probably very slowly, probably quite frustrating for the synagogue leader, Jairus, towards his house and his daughter, And of course, when suddenly we hear of a woman who has a 12-year-old problem of her own. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And we're not told exactly the nature of the bleeding. We could speculate, but it was some kind of chronic condition beyond the remedies that anyone had, uh, had given her. And of course, yes, her condition was physical, But of course it was actually perhaps more uh, importantly social as well as it made her ceremonially unclean. The law declared any contact with a woman in this condition with bleeding made not only her but anyone who came in contact with her ceremonially unclean. She was considered on the outside of the community. She was shunned by the community. Someone Um, to stay away with, an outcast, and kind of beyond the social respectability. And through Mark, we have already seen that Jesus reached out to such people on the margins of society. We've seen that, haven't we? To the most unlikely people, to the demon-possessed man, Levi, the hated tax collector, and other sinners. Jesus turns things upside down, doesn't he? Those who were on the outside are brought In and the synagogue leader, used to being in charge, used to being setting the pattern, now has to wait. Has to wait, doesn't he? While Jesus puts this social outsider first. Do we do we get this? Not only individually, but as a as a church, do we get this? You know, we're not a religious club for its in-members, existing for a select few, just chattering about religious things to each other. That's not why we're here. We are for the outsider, for the downcast. Jesus, as he moves about his community, looks for such people. He looks for the lost, the weak, the sick, the sinner, and he, he, he touches them. He touches them. He, he makes himself ceremonially unclean. Because that's pointing us forward, isn't it, to um, the fact that when he died on the cross, he will take upon himself all our uncleanness 
as all, all our infirmities, all our sin, all on himself. And by his wounds, we who are unclean will be made whole. And so Mark skillfully heightens the, the narrative here for us, the drama. The woman was in great need. She'd lost everything. She spent all her money on all sorts of remedies. She'd lost her place in society. Um, and so with the size of the crowd, I think there's a sense, isn't there, she spots an opportunity. Perhaps she thinks, I'll not get noticed in this large crowd. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. What do you make of her reasoning here? It's a bit odd, isn't it? I mean, it sort of seems like a mixture of truth and superstition. It's a mixture of reality and of magic, isn't it? An indication, I think, of what happens to someone who gets to such desperation, who gets to such a point, who's tried every kind of crackpot idea that there is out there, been to all sorts of um, alternative medicines down the back streets of Judea, tried all sorts of alternative therapies, and in 12 years later hasn't tried the one thing, that of Jesus Christ. I've um, heard dramatic things, she might say to herself, about this Jesus. Something is happening around him. Maybe Jesus will heal me. Maybe that's all it was. The result is, of course, immediate. Verse 29, you see that? Immediately, her bleeding stopped. She was freed from her suffering. And immediately, again, Jesus realizes in verse 30 that power has gone out of him. There's kind of a great mystery in this. He realizes the power has gone out of him, but yet at the same time doesn't realize who it is that has touched him. There's a bit of a mystery in that, isn't there? Don't go spend ages thinking about it. Just leave it as a mystery. Jesus knew someone had touched him. Who touched me, he asked. The disciples respond understandably. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. But Jesus, what does he do here? He keeps looking. He keeps looking. He wants to find this woman. Keeps looking. He's not letting go of this. He is distracted from what he was going to be doing to rush to Jairus' house. That's all on hold now. Verse 33. Then the woman, knowing what happened to her, came and fell at his feet Trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. The 12 years of truth. The 12 years of bleeding. I mean, that probably was going to be quite a long story to tell Jesus the whole truth, I reckon. How it had taken all her money, how she tried all sorts of potions and, and pills lived on the outside of society where she was kept away from people, probably kept away from her own family, kept away from her own friends, how she was alone, distant from the community, not able to share with anyone in her suffering, not able to go to temple worship and synagogue worship. I think we would fall 
at Jesus' feet, wouldn't we? If we were in a similar position, we'd fall at Jesus' feet and tell him the whole truth. It probably took a while. It's a 12-year-old story. It probably involved a lot of tears. But she came and she knelt before Jesus. And that's what it takes. It takes for each and every one of us here this morning. Have you ever come to Jesus and told him your story, your whole story? Knelt at his feet and told him everything, the truth. No holds barred. And how do you think Jesus might respond to you? I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because here, we might respond something like, well, you're not quite ready, are you? You need to go to this course and do this and that. Your understanding is very limited. It seems all mixed up with superstition and tradition and magic. Do you really understand who I am? Maybe come back in a few weeks once you've properly worked it out. That's what we probably would would say, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says in verse 34, these beautiful words, he simply says, daughter. He says, daughter. I mean, don't underestimate the impact of Jesus saying to this woman, daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The only person in the New Testament, as far as I can see, and you can go and check, who Jesus calls daughter. Isn't that remarkable? She's a daughter. That's a term of affection. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term of belonging. It's a term of relationship. It's a term that means you, you're, you belong, doesn't it? And that is something she had never, ever experienced, isn't it? In the last 12 years, daughter. Daughter. And think about who is listening to all this. As Jesus says, daughter, who's listening? Who has another problem? A 12-year-old daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. You see, the woman touched not simply a touch of the hand. It was a touch of faith. It was about faith. And Jesus wants to draw this out Plenty of people were touching um, Jesus. They were rubbing up against him. Um, But it wasn't about him somehow having some magical um, sort of uh, force that emanated from him, as if you sort of came in close proximity to him. Um, No, it's about faith in Jesus. And Jesus wants to draw that out with the woman. Some of them laughed Some were offended. Some asked him to leave. That's the general response to Jesus, isn't it? That we talked about earlier. And it's amazing to think, as the woman makes her way through the crowd, to touch Jesus with such a childlike faith. 
with such a, a messy-like faith, with all its superstition and, and tradition and stuff going on. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you even describe this as a miracle? That she could make her way and have faith like this. Wouldn't you say that it's a miracle, actually, that when any of us ever come to Jesus in faith? Oh, yes. You see, by nature, we're all like the crowd. We either are offended by him, we either laugh at him, or we ask him to leave. That's by nature what we are like. Those are the three normal responses. And so it is a miracle that this woman comes and she has faith. It is good soil. And so Jesus speaks with her, verse 35, and pulls her out of the crowd to explain to her that the cure was not because she touched his clothes, but the cure was because she had trusted in Jesus. She had faith enough, very small faith it might be, faith as a mustard seed, but faith it was. Faith in Jesus Christ, in the object of her trust. Little was her knowledge and understanding, great was her misunderstanding, yet because of her faith, it was real faith and it saved her. She came privately, and guess what? She left publicly, didn't she? She came in pain, she left in peace. She came as a nobody and she went as a daughter. A daughter of God. She is a reminder that we do not come to Christ from a position of just sort of rubbing up against Jesus. As if we're somehow going to imbibe Jesus through the air. That's not how we come to faith. It's not by just some detached kind of curiosity, if I just ask enough questions. No, there is a point of faith that has to be made. This woman had tried everything, hadn't she? But she had never trusted Christ until this point. And actually there's a possibility here this morning that that actually describes you. Tried everything, you've tried alternative therapies, self-help books, you're at the end of your tether, nothing has seemed to work, but you have never put your trust in Jesus like this woman. When you, you say, oh, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I have enough faith to do that. I, I don't think I have enough knowledge yet. But that's okay. Neither does this woman. Because it's not the size of your faith that matters, it's the object of your faith that matters. It's about Jesus Christ. But what about Jairus? The poor, distraught father. All this time is just watching, waiting. You can imagine him sort of, you know, doing all that waiting and listening, but desperately wanting Jesus to move on. Listening to the word daughter, your faith has healed you. What about my daughter? Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Imagine what that must have felt like to Jairus. It must have hit him right through the heart. 
And that's what it feels to me when I... We read it because we know the end of the story, but Jairus doesn't know the end of the story, does he? And yet Jesus looks at him calmly and just says, don't be afraid, just believe. In essence, Jesus is saying, be patient, there is no hurry. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, different cultures have um, different sense of time. It's true, isn't it? We even see that in church from time to time. (laughs) Even in turning up at church on time. uh, We see that from time to time, don't we? Different cultures. Some see lateness as a rude thing. Some people see lateness as just a movable thing, isn't it? Um, But God's sense of timing will absolutely confound ours. He rarely operates according to our timing and schedules. And that is tough, I think, for lots of us. Particularly in our culture and in our scheduling culture, in our spreadsheet culture. How our lives are actually set up by time. Jesus just says, trust me, be patient. Jesus will not be hurried. And uh, as a result... um, what must that have felt like to Jairus? It seems perhaps irrational. It probably seems a little bit unkind, doesn't it? That Jesus should do this. But in actual fact, when you do go to Jesus for help, when you do turn to Jesus, you will get from him more than you bargained for. Jairus got far more than he expected As Jesus comes to his house, what did Jairus get? He was hoping that his daughter would be healed. But what did Jesus get? I mean, what did Jairus get? He got a a resurrection, didn't he? Verse 40, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. You see, to Jairus and to the disciples, and perhaps to us, it had looked like a bit of malpractice by Jesus, doesn't it, actually? Delaying the arrival at the house to deal with someone who was not dying. Yes, he had a chronic problem, but wasn't an acute problem and dying at that point. To deal with that. But of course, they didn't have the facts. And you and I don't have the facts, the full facts. And so when God seems to delay his grace... His healing, his help to us. It's because we don't have all the facts. And I know that's really difficult for us to get our heads around. We don't have all the information. And we're not Jesus and we're not God. And I'm sure if I was to sit down with you and listen to your story, your story, and you were to tell it and explain it, I would be saying, I don't understand why God seems to be delaying and not coming through to you. I know how you feel. Why is he delaying? I don't understand it. And I want to be as sensitive to you in this as I can be. When I say what those delays of God are like, and when I look to them in my own life, And struggle with those and wrestle with those delays. I realize 
the great deal of my anger or my annoyance for those delays is actually rooted in my own arrogance. If Jesus is who he says he is, which of course I believe very strongly that he is, that he is the Son of God, then what makes us think that somehow we know what is better for us? We're not God. But sometimes we have such delusions of grandeur about what is supposed to happen and when. I don't know, right now, is God somehow in your head delaying something in your life? Are you, are you ready kind of to give up on God? Are you impatient with him? Thinking, don't bother the teacher now. Thinking in that way. There may be a crucial factor there will be a crucial factor and facts that you do not have access to and perhaps will never have this side of eternity have the crucial facts in your hands. The answer, as with Jairus, is to not be afraid. Believe. To trust in Jesus, the object of our faith. I don't know, are you hurrying Jesus? Are you trying to hurry him, speed him up? Are you impatient with the waiting? Just let him take you by the hand. And let him do what he wants to do. He loves you. He loves you more than you will ever know. He loves you completely and fully. He knows what he's doing. And of course, soon it will be time to wake up, won't it? Soon it will be Resurrection Day. Hallelujah. Let's be patient. As hard as that is. Let us trust in Jesus so that we may partake in the resurrection to eternal life. Shall we pray? Our God, our Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us the gift of faith this morning. Maybe for the first time there's somebody here who has not put their trust in Jesus. Father, we pray that they would come to you now and put their trust in Jesus. Do not be afraid. Just believe. And Father, we pray if we've been Christians uh, two days, one minute... 40 years that you'll help us to trust and believe in Jesus and to not be afraid. For we ask in his name. Amen.